keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. And I want to really focus in on that purified seven times. If you also turn with me to Psalm 138 and verse 2. I make mention of this verse quite a lot, but it's very important when we talk about translation and we talk about God's Word. Psalm 138 and verse 2. And it says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. And again, that's just to emphasize how important God's word is to him, as it is above his own name. And if you could, for the sake of what we're going to talk about today as well, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 11 and 12. This is the Christian battle, brothers and sisters. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness and high places. So our battle this morning is spiritual. And just for the sake of time, you don't have to turn to this one, but we read it last week. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17. <clears throat> For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God and the sight of God speak we in Christ. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks this morning that we can gather together under your name and that we can gather together under your word. Father, we tell you this morning that we love you and we thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for the day and the hour that that spirit did regenerate us, that opened our spiritual eyes, that we could see you for exactly who you were. Now, Lord, close us in with yourself. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, giving you thanks. Amen. Okay, just a very short recap of week one. We established that the Old Testament proves that God is well capable of having his word written down, destroyed and broken, copied and rewritten. It just did not matter in the providential care of Almighty God. I also ask that you believe in the total sovereignty of God. Otherwise, you cannot totally grasp the inspiration of God, nor the total preservation of God. Then, brothers and sisters, last week we looked at the journey of the manuscripts that would form the greatest Bible translation of them all. We went north to Antioch, the place where they were first called Christians. And followed the received texts as it journeyed west following the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We looked at how God preserved his word among select groups as he knew there was a power coming that was going to be so great. A system that would rise that in Revelation 13.7 says that, that power was given over to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. So there was a real need to preserve his word and to protect it. We followed the scriptures right up to the printing press. Showing God's providential hand right at the pinnacle of the Reformation. From Wycliffe to Erasmus to Luther and on to Tyndale. As God raised up men with a desire to know his word and make it available to the common man. We also ventured south to Egypt and the city of Alexandria. A place of learning and corruption. Where we were introduced to a man named Origen. 
and how he gave the world three particular Bible perversions. Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrius. This morning, as we continue to the authorized version of 1611, I also want to bring alive the words of the psalmist from our opening text where he said, purified seven times. As we've discussed over the last couple of weeks, the KJV was not the first Bible to be translated into English. But even though hundreds of complete Bibles, New Testaments, and Scripture portions have been translated into English since 1611, it is obvious that the authorized version is the last English Bible. That is the last English Bible that God authorized. And because the authorized version is the last English Bible, and because we believe it contains the very words of God, it can be proven that not only is English the seventh language used, giving us God's written word, the KJV can be demonstrated to be the seventh translation in the English rendering of his word. So how do we qualify the English Bibles up to and including the authorized version in order to make it seem right with Psalm 12 and 6 describing the words of the Lord as being purified seven times? Especially since there's been 10 English translations up to that point. Well, let's revisit two of our translations from last week. Firstly, we have John Wycliffe, who is credited with being the first to translate the entire Bible into English. It is to remember that no Greek or Hebrew text versions or editions were yet at that time framed or formed for his translation. Wycliffe did his translating primarily from the only Bible then in use, the Latin Vulgate. He often is called the morning star of the Reformation for his opposition to the elastical abuses of the papacy. Secondly, William Tyndale had the distinction of being the first to translate the New Testament from Greek, the original language, into English. He early, early distinguished himself as a scholar both at Cambridge and Oxford, and was fluent in several languages. Tyndale soon advanced both his desire and his own demise, as seen in his reply to a critic, where I quote what he says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause the boy that driveth the plough in England to know more of the scriptures than thou doest. The moving factor in his translation of the New Testament was that he perceived by experience how that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scripture were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue, that they might see the process, order, and meaning of the text. The printing of the New Testament, his New Testament was completed in worms and smuggled into England, where it was an instant success. Tyndale then turned his attention to the Old Testament. He never finished it. However, for on May 21st, 1535, Tyndale was kidnapped and imprisoned in Belgium. On October 6th, 1536, he was burned as a heretic and condemned to death. He was strangled and burned, but not before he uttered the immortal prayer of, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Although Tyndale's English Bible was the first to be translated directly from the original languages, it was just the New Testament. It was a man by the name of Miles Coverdale 
1488 to 1569, who was the first to publish a complete English Bible. Coverdale's Bible was printed in October 1535, and he based his work on the Zurich Bible, the Vulgate, the Latin text of Paginius, Luther's Bible, and the previous work of William Tyndale, especially in the New Testament. Although Coverdale's second edition of 1537 contained the license of the king, the first Bible to contain, obtain such license was published earlier the same year. I'm trying, brothers, just to show you the timeline of these English Bibles. So that other Bible was the Matthew Bible. It was more of a revision than a translation, and Thomas Matthew was just a pseudonym for a man named John Rogers, a friend of Tyndale, to whom he had turned over his unpublished manuscripts on the translation of the Old Testament. Rogers used Tyndale's New Testament and the completed parts of the Old Testament. For the rest of the Bible, he relied on Coverdale. The whole of this material was slightly revised and accompanied by introductions and chapter summaries. I was commenting in the letter to Cromwell that, that he liked it better than any other translation hitherfore made. And so it happened that Tyndale's translation, which was prescribed just a few years earlier, was circulating with the king's permission and authority both in the Coverdale and Matthew Bibles. Although the Coverdale and Matthew Bibles were set forth with the king's most gracious license, the Great Bible, which was printed by White Church, was the first official authorized Bible. Cromwell delegated to Miles Coverdale the work of revising the Matthew Bible and his controversial notes and to have it read and open in public churches. The completed Bible appeared in 1539. At the same time as Coverdale was preparing the Great Bible, a man named Richard Tavernier, from the year 1505 to 1577, undertook an independent revision of Matthew's Bible. It appeared under the title of, and I quote, the most sacred Bible, which is the Holy Scripture containing the Old and New Testament, translated into English and newly recognized with great diligence after most faithful exemplars by Richard Tavernier. He was a competent Greek scholar and made some slight changes in the text and notes of the Matthew Bible. His work was eclipsed by the Great Bible and had but minor influence on later translations. Now during the reign of the Catholic Queen Mary Tudor, many English reformers, among them Miles Coverdale, fled to Geneva. It was here in 1557 that William Whittingham, the brother-in-law of John Calvin and successor of John Knox at the English church in Geneva, translated the New Testament in what was to become the Geneva Bible. And brothers and sisters, of all the Bibles that went before the authorized, the Geneva is probably the one that you may well have heard of. The superiority of the Geneva Bible over the Great Bible was readily apparent. It was the notes, however, that made it unacceptable for official use in England. If anyone's ever seen the Geneva Bible, you can only read one sentence at a time before you read two or three hundred words of notes. It is that comprehensive. Archbishop Matthew Parker soon took steps to make a revision of the Great Bible, and that would replace both it and the Geneva Bible. The Bible was divided into, into parts 
and distributed to scholars for revision. Parker served as the editor, and most of, the, of his revisers were bishops, hence the Bishop's Bible, the first Bible to be translated by a committee. It was published in 1568. So now after the death of Elizabeth in 1603, James I, who was at the time James VI of Scotland, became the King of England. One of the first things done by the new king was he called for the Hampton Court Conference in January of 1604. For the hearing and for the determining things pretended to be amiss in the church. And here was assembled bishops, clergymen, professors, along with four Puritan divines to consider the complaints of the Puritans. So it was the Puritans who were having a problem. Although Bible revision was not on the agenda, the Puritan president of Corpus Christi College, John Reynolds, and I quote, moved his majesty that there might be a new translation of the Bible because those which were allowed in the reigns of Henry VIII and Edward VI were corrupt and not answerable to the truth of the original. So the next step was the actual selection process of the men who were to perform the work. In July of 1604, James wrote to Bishop Bancroft that he had appointed certain learned men to the number of four and fifty for the translating of the Bible. Although 54 men were nominated, only 47 were known to have taken part in the translation. The completed Bible known as the King James Version or the Authorized Version, was used in 1611 and remains the Bible read, preached, believed, and acknowledged as the authority by many Bible believers today. That's why I still can't understand, brothers and sisters, why this book is attacked so much. We have covered the translations very briefly of Wycliffe, Tyndale, Coverdale, Matthew, the Great Bible, the Tavernier Bible, or the Geneva Bible, the Bishops, and the King James. That's nine English Bibles. But there's one other in English that I don't comment on because neither did the Reformers. It was the Roman Catholic Dowie Rhymes, which Rome had put in place to once again try and assert authority over its own people. So up to that point, we have ten English Bibles up to and including the authorised version. So how do we get them into the description of Psalm 12 and 6 of the words purified seven times? This entails the elimination of three versions. But which three? Many such answers have been given and theories suggested. I have read them all. And I could speak for another two weeks on the suggestions and the reasons why they're not classed as the official lineage of Bibles. The definitive list of Bibles that makes the authorised version the seventh Bible, therefore fitting this description, is not found in the opinions of many of these writers on the history of the English Bible. To the contrary, the definitive list is to be found on the often overlooked details concerning the translating of the authorised version. To begin with, the translators of the authorised version did acknowledge that they had a multitude of sources from which to draw from. Neither did we think much to consult the translators or commentators, Chaldee, Hebrew, Syrian, Greek, or Latin. No, nor the Spanish, French, Italian, or Dutch. So that's all the people that the, that the translators acknowledged. They also had the Greek editions of Erasmus, Stephanus, and Beza. 
the translators also acknowledged that they had at their disposal all the previous English translations of the 16th century. And this is what they, this is what they say. We are so far off from condemning any of their labors that travail before us in this kind. Now that's interesting. They wouldn't condemn all the labors of those who had gone before, but modern proponents of modern translations will attack the King James Version as if it's heresy. So in their humbleness, they also said, either in this land or beyond sea, either in King Henry's time or King Edward's, or Queen Elizabeth's of ever-renowned memory, that we acknowledge them to have been raised up of God for the building and furnishing of his church, and that it deserves to be had of us and of posterity and everlasting remembrance. That's what they thought of those that went before. The information we need is not in the translators of the epistle dedicatory or the translators to the reader. If anyone's got a King James Version of the Bible, which is very hard now to get, you'll find at the very front of this book notes from the translators describing why they did it the way they did and what their sources were, as well as the epistle dedicatory. And most modern versions of the KJV, those things are now absent. But we'll find them in the rules that were to be observed in the translation of the Bible. These general rules, 15 in number, were advanced for the guidance of the translators. And I've read them all, and it took me about 25 minutes. So I'm not going to read them all out now. The first and 14th of what I'm going to read is because they're very, very important for what I'm going to say. Number one, this was the first point in the rules for translation. The ordinary Bible read in the church, commonly called the Bishop's Bible, to be followed and as little altered as the truth of the original will permit. So the Bishop's Bible is named. Point number 14. These translations to be used when they agree better with the text than the Bishop's Bible. They then mention Tyndale's, Matthew's, Coverdale's, Whitchurch's, which was the Great Bible, and Geneva which gives us seven English translations of the Word of God. I've already said the, Catholic, the Roman Catholic Diary Rhymes was never considered. Wycliffe, all, although brilliant, was not originally from the Greek, nor complete. And Tavernier was only a modest revision, at best. And thus we have our answer. The seven English versions that make the English Bibles, up to and including the authorised version, fit the description of Psalm 12 and 6, of the words purified seven times. So now you have the Bible. Let me introduce you to some of the translators. John Harmon, MA, New College, Oxford. In 1585, he had been appointed King's Professor of Greek. He had published Latin translations of Calvin and Beza's sermons and was also adept in Greek. He was a member of the New Testament group that met at Oxford. Thomas Bilson, of him it was wrote that he was so complete in divinity, so well skilled in languages, so read in the fathers and schoolmen, so judicious in making use of his readings, that at length he was found to be no longer a soldier, but a commander and chief of spiritual warfare. Dr. George Abbott. Dr. Abbott started at Oxford in 1578 getting his B.D. in 1593, and at 35 years of age, he's received his doctorate and became first master, or first master of University College and later vice-chancellor. 
He became Bishop of Lichfield in 1609 and Archbishop of Canterbury in 1611. He was regarded as the head of the Puritans within the Church of England. But my favourite, Lancelot Andrews. Andrews was sent to Cambridge. After his studies, he was raised to several positions of influence within the church and distinguished himself as a diligent and excellent preacher and became chaplain to Queen Elizabeth I. King James I promoted him several times and toward the end of his life, he was made Bishop of Winchester. But these quotes about him are what I love about him most. It is recorded that Andrews was a man of deep piety and that King James had such great respect for him that in his presence he refrained from the levity in which he indulged at other times. A sermon preached at Andrews' funeral in 1626 paid tribute to his great scholarship. Now hear this. His knowledge in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Chaldee, Syriac and Arabic besides 15 modern languages was so advanced that he may be ranked as one of the rarest linguists in history. A great part of five hours every day was spent in prayer. And in his last illness, he spent all his time in prayer. And when both voice, eyes, and hands failed in their office, his countenance showed that he still prayed and praised God in his heart until it pleased God to receive his blessed soul to himself. While these scholars were perfectly suited to the task of translation, individually they still had to agree on every single word of the Bible. That meant man's mere opinion could not be allowed to stand in the text. But the goal of the king's translators of 1604 to 1611 was not to write a new Bible from scratch, nor was it to make a translation from a Roman Catholic perversion. And I quote, and again this is in the notes to the reader. Truly good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation. Nor yet to make of a bad one a good one. But to make a good one better. Or out of many good ones, one principle good one. Not, just, not justly to be accepted against. That hath been our endeavor, that our mark. And that is exactly what God did. Throughout history, God preserved his words. And culminating with over 54 dedicated learned men, God put his words in English, in his perfection, in one final translation. The King James Version of the Bible. Surely it is time that the names of these venerated men were rescued from obscurity. And that at least some considerable part of those who have received such incalculable benefits at their hands should know to in whom they are so richly indebted. Brothers and sisters, any Bible you pick up started with these men, regardless of the direction that I take this talk. I for one stand in awe at their achievements, not least their humbleness towards the previous translations and laborers, their dedication to prayer and their total reliance in the Holy Ghost. So after the authorized version came off the press at the beginning of the 17th century, Revival went worldwide. Then for the next 300 years, men of God with the power of the Holy Ghost, within them led untold thousands, hundreds of thousands to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So what's the devil to do? You see, I said before that the devil knew that once the word of God was out, there was nothing he could do. But his principal tactic is to cause doubt and to deceive. Now the Webster Dictionary on the word deception is the act of making someone believe something that is not true. So nothing short of spiritual wickedness outlined in our opening reading as the devil came up with a plan. In the 1850s, two men began preparing their corrupted, revised Greek texts based on the Alexandrian manuscripts. But not just that, brothers and sisters. Add to the mix in the same era a new toxic brand of supposed God religions. First, in the mid-1930s, Joseph Smith had visions which led to the formation of the Mormon movements. Although it was 1830, sorry, my apologies. Although this was not firmly established until 1847 through the pioneer Brigham Young. Hot on the heels in 1589, a man named Charles Darwin published his book, The Origin of Species. We see what that's done. Shortly thereafter, in the mid-1870s, came a man called Charles Russell, who founded the modern Jehovah Witness movement controlled by the Watchtower Society. Brothers and sisters, the world was being offered new religions based on God and science with a new set of scriptures, both hammering a people's doubt and have since been breathtaking not only in speed, but their sheer progress. What makes it all the more incredible is the fact that this all happened in the space of 50 years. And in the midst of the turmoil, these two men were secretly working their way into history. Dr. Brooke Westcott and Dr. Fenton Hort. I wasn't going to do this, but who has heard of those men? Let's see a raise of hands. I hadn't heard about them about three years ago. Okay, four years ago. Up until this time in history, there was basically two Greek manuscript lineages. The Antioch line of manuscripts and the Alexandrian line of manuscripts. Now, God-fearing leaders of the churches had constantly and consistently rejected the Alexandrian line for almost 1,800 years because the Texas Receptus was accepted as the Greek text down through the channels of history. Now, of the, as of 1967, of the 5,255 extant Greek manuscripts, that's fragments and pieces of the Greek manuscripts known to exist in the world, 5,210 agree with the Texas Receptus. That's 99%. The other 45 or 1% are of corrupted variations. Of the translations of Constantine and then Eusebius, which were put together back in the 4th century, of Origen's Alexandrian texts, two are believed to exist today. They are known as Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. And I've been waiting three weeks to tell you about these two codexes. What I'm about to tell you now about them didn't come from a pro-KJV website and didn't come from an anti-KJV website. This came from what I can see as a secular historical website. And this is what they say about Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. So Vaticanus first. 
so-called because it is the most famous manuscript script in the possession of the Vatican Library. It's generally believed to be from the 4th century and is thought to be the oldest, nearly complete copy of the Greek Bible in existence. So why did Rome hide it away until the late 1800s? Lacking, lacking from it are most of the book of Genesis, the foundation of our faith, Hebrews 9 through 14, which gets away with most of the priests to the end, and the pastoral epistles, as well as the book of Revelation. These parts were lost by damage to the front and back of the volume and is common, as is common in ancient manuscripts. For many years, Codex Vaticanus was highly esteemed by scholars who knew next to nothing about it besides its evident antiquity. Synaticus. And again, this isn't a, I do not believe this website to be a Christian website. Codex Synaticus was discovered by Constantine Tissendorf in a convent at the foot of Mount Sinai. It contains the entire Greek Bible plus the epistle of Barnabas. And most of the shepherd of Hermas, which was an early Christian writing, which was usually, was, was widely used in teaching at that time. It is believed to be from the 4th century, but somewhat later than Codex Vaticanus. Now the text of Synaticus contains an unusually, unusually high number of readings which have clearly arisen by transcriptural error, most of them by careless omissions. Aside from these, however, the text closely resembles that of Codex Vaticanus, and so the discovery of Synaticus had the effect of increasing the already high reputation of the manuscript. Readings which are shared by both of these codexes are usually regarded by critics as deserving of special attention. How can anything that has got gross omissions be deserving of any special attention? But it says here is a note, see Westcott and Hort, 1881, in their revised Greek New Testament. So when modern scholars refer as they do in footnotes, and you can go turn to your Bibles, whichever Bible you have. Not that I'm asking you to do that right now, but if you want to take a look, especially at the last chapter of Mark, or if you want to look at um, some of the other, the other scriptures that are supposed to be missing, you'll find in your little column in the middle, or in the notes at the bottom, you'll find things that say the most ancient manuscripts, the most reliable manuscripts, the most reliable early manuscripts, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts, or the many early manuscripts. They are most of the time referring to Vaticanus and Synaticus when there's things that shouldn't be apparently in your new Bible. What's more is that over the years, the comments used to be in the very small, on the middle columns, whereas in most modern Bibles, and I have seen them, now brazenly have it above or below the so-called missing text, therefore making it impossible to miss. So it's like having an alarm bell whenever you read the scripture and it says the oldest manuscripts don't contain these words. So back to Horton Westcott. In 1853, when Dr. Westcott and Dr. Hort decided there needed to be a reconstruction of the Greek text, their stated reason for this reconstruction was, and I quote, we are constrained by overwhelming evidence to recognize the existence of textual error in all manuscript documents. But they didn't see the error in Synaticus and Vaticanus. Here they flatter themselves by claiming God could not keep 
his word to preserve his word. But by their own professional opinions, brothers and sisters, they believed they could put it all back together for him. From origin to Constantine to Westcott and Hort, like a product through an assembly line, a new set of Greek manuscripts have been developed. And every single modern translation uses the Hort and Westcott texts in some way or another. They completed their project in 1871. So after all their word changes, omissions and additions, their text was altered from the Texas Receptus in approximately 5,337 instances. And we'll look at some of those next week. Both men wrote books and many letters which led to Dr. Westcott's son writing a 900-plus page biography about them, utilizing the books, letters, and assorted papers they wrote. The biographies, biographies plainly show by several references that each made sure that Plato, Origen, and Aristotle were the central points of their reading schedule. In fact, Arthur Westcott states, and I quote, and some of these are quotes, brothers and sisters, and it's very, very important so that you know the spirit of these men. So Arthur Westcott wrote of his father. He said, My father's promised contributions, however, were completed, the most important being his articles on the Alexandrian divines, including Clement, Demetrius, and the greatest of all, Origen. For many years, the works of Origen were close to his hand, and he continually turned to them at every opportunity. Dr. Brooke Westcott himself wrote in a letter to Dr. Hort stating, and I quote, I reject the word infallibility of Holy Scripture overwhelmingly. Dr. Fenton Hort was a dabbler in the occult. He founded the Ghostly Guild Society for the classification of ghosts and psychic phenomena. This was during the same time he was coming up with his new revised Greek texts. Dr. Hort also wrote that the doctrine of evangelicals was perverted rather than untrue. So as far as he was concerned, we shouldn't have preached. 1 Timothy 4 and 1 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Deception clearly seemed to be the motive for the reconstructed Greek text. Then in a letter to a colleague, Dr. Hort cautioned, And I quote again, the errors and prejudices which we agree in wishing to remove can surely be more wholesomely and also more effectually reached by individual efforts of an indirect kind better than combined open assault. Reasoning in a letter to Dr. Westcott in 1861, Dr. Hort writes also, but this may be cowardice, I have a sort of craving that our text should be cast upon the world before we deal with matters likely to brand us with suspicion. I mean, a text issued by men already known for what will undoubtedly be treated as dangerous heresy. Brothers and sisters, they class their own work as dangerous heresy. We now class it as modern translations. He further said, we'll have great difficulties in finding its way to regions which it might otherwise hope to reach and whence it would not be easily banished by subsequent alarms. So they went to places where, they, where it would be accepted first. Second Timothy 3 and 13 says, But evil men and seducers, seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. In further correspondence to Dr. Westcott, Dr. Hort wrote, In our rapid correspondence about the New Testament, I have been forgetting Plato. 
Now let's compare these men to another of the KJB translators. And I left this guy out because I wanted to compare and contrast. John Boas. By age five, his father had taught him to read Hebrew. By age six, he had read the entire Old Testament in Hebrew as well as been able to write it in Hebrew. As a student at St. John's College and at age 15, he was corresponding with professors in Greek. He went on to master all eight variations of the Greek language. He was so familiar with the Greek texts, he could at any time turn to any word that it contained. Such was his popularity at Cambridge that students would voluntarily turn up to his lectures at 4 a.m. The EU doesn't allow students to get up any earlier than 8 o'clock in the morning these days. Brothers and sisters, a different time, a different world, but what a colossal difference in application and perspective. So let's compare John Boas with Westcott and Hort. Dr. Hort wrote in the year 1850, But I am so ignorant of the Hebrew, and what is worse, of the Greek text of the New Testament, that I have all but discarded them. Further, in 1853, he wrote the following just prior to the commencement of the New Text Revision. I had no idea till the past few weeks of the importance of texts, having read so little Greek Testament and dragged on with the villainous Texas Receptus. As for Dr. Westcott's expertise, this is what he said having completed the reconstruction of their texts. I cannot speak of the Old Testament with any adequate knowledge. So to give you a bit more background into these two men. Both men were firm believers in the basics of Plato's Republic and praised the writings of Darwin. Both men were devout Roman Catholic, denied the virgin birth as well as a literal creation. They also believed in purgatory as well as the veneration of Mary and they even said it was more important than Jesus' worship. After completing their revised Greek text in 1871, they themselves headed up the translation committee that produced the revised English version of 1881. Brothers and sisters, you can see the spirit behind the translations. You can see very clearly the line of the seven English Bibles, the acknowledgement of the translators to those who had gone before and appreciated the work that had been done. The men who spent hours in prayer and treated the scriptures with so much respect is so evident in the way that they lived their lives. And then we have these two, Horton Westcott. Of all the new modern translations comes primarily from their work. So from there we can track their revisions, starting with Eberhard Nestle, 1851 to 1913. After deciding that Westcott and Hort's revised text needed further revision. So from 1898 came Nestle's Greek text first edition. Then his son Irvin Nestle and Kirk Alan decided further revisions needed to be done. So by 1979 you have the Nestle Alan Greek text 26th edition. That is 26 editions in 81 years. Which averages a new edition every 3.1 years. By this 26th edition, they have made 5,604 alterations from the Texas Receptus. 
So brothers and sisters, we need, to, we need to understand the value that God has of his own word. He said his word is above his own name. God Almighty has used men and women to change this world. So when I tell you about the authors of the, trans, of the translators of the King James Version of the Bible versus these gentlemen, who would you want to translate your Bible for you? And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, and this I close. The devil's aim is not to completely alter and change the word of God. That's why 80 to 90 to 95% of what you read in a modern translation is completely fine. It's the spirit behind it. And it's to cause doubt. By putting things in columns, by putting things in footnotes, by ending chapters, by saying that these things should not be here, causes doubt. I asked my mum to bring up from Lamavati my New King James Version of the Bible, the John MacArthur Study Bible that I had in my being for a long and many a year. And there's something very interesting that John MacArthur says at the very start that really start, that startled me last night. Because he actually talks about Sinaiticus and Vaticanus as being unreliable. But yet they're still used in the translation that he was involved with. So brothers and sisters, the enemy is not out to try and downgrade God's word in your heart. He's there to get you to question whether it should be there or not. And once he has you on that slippery slope of questioning one verse, another verse, another word, comma input, all the rest of it, next thing you know, everything is wide open. Just look at the Church of England tonight. What about the Church of Scotland last night? Because why they've so twisted the word of God that everything fits And trust me, brothers and sisters, I have a 1982 version of the New King James Version of the Bible, and I can tell you now that there's chapters and verses changed in the space of 20 years, just to fit. So the enemy is trying to subtly come in and alter and change. And once you put in doubt, you can change whatever you want. The Bible is very clear, especially when it comes to homosexuality. But this isn't my fight to be having but when a church, an established church, can say that they now are, can be in a pulpit, then there's something very wrong. So that's me finished for this morning. I believe I have one more week left. Next week, I plan to look at the principal techniques used in translation and to show you some of the things that have been removed from your Bible and the things that they're trying to remove from your Bible and the things that they want to remove from your Bible. God bless.